Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 249 of the podcast. It is May 16th, 2016. My guest today is Steve Leischel. He's the author of the book, Lean Culture Change, Using a Daily Management System. Now, there was a guest post from Steve on the blog back in January that included an excerpt from his book um, about huddles. So you can find a link to that if you go to leanblog.org slash 249. And in this episode, Steve and I discuss a number of topics, including who his greatest influences are, the lessons he learned from Roger Lewis, a former Toyota executive, the idea of mutual trust, PDCA cycles, daily huddles, and more. And you know, we talk about the potential of a lean management system. Why is it so difficult to get organizations and leaders to embrace a, a holistic system to do that type of culture change? So before we start, I would like to thank, uh, we have a sponsor for this episode. They are Quick Procedure. And if you go to their website, www.qikprocedure.com, Quick Procedure lets you create your procedures 400% faster. It's now available on iPad. With Quick Procedure, you don't need a PC or a camera or even a notepad. Simply open Quick Procedure and fill in the document details. Complete the details for each process step and add photos, all without leaving the process. Save time, save money with Quick Procedure. And now here's today's episode. Steve, hi. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. So, you know, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're talking, of course, about your uh, relatively new book, Lean Culture Change, Using a Daily Management System. Um, you know, it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort to bring a, a book to fruition. So I'm curious, what was the, the passion behind the book? What was the story that, that led you uh, to do it? Well, years ago when I first met Roger Lewis, who wrote the introduction, um, his approach to changing an organization or implementing lean is very different from what's out there in the mainstream. It's starting to get more and more mainstream. Um, but there really wasn't a good training book to say, hey, these are the tools I think we need to use first. This is why we need to use these tools first. And this is how these different tools interconnect. So that's what drove me to write this book uh, and also find examples about those tools that are out there that hospitals are, are using. So... Yeah, so tell, I was going to ask you about Roger. He wrote the introduction to the book. There are some really uh, good videos. I'll, I'll link to those in the blog post um, about the episode. Tell us about his background and, and why you think he has, um, why, why he's developed a different perspective or a different approach. Well, in the appendix, in the preface, I go over the what I believe is the theory of professionalization of lean. And when you look at the Toyota community and the lean community, I think there was a lot of individuals that came out of Toyota that learned how to do Kaizen events, that learned how to do tools. Um, and when you look at the Kaizen event and how Toyota engaged their suppliers, most of the time it was through some type of Kaizen event activity because they had the need to solve the problem. And they already had this system in place. Um, Roger was one of the first few individuals that were hired at the Toyota Georgetown plant, which is a pretty neat story. Uh, I may have some of these facts wrong, but 1986 is when they hired the majority of the leaders, and they didn't start production until 1988 or 1989. Uh, so when you look at that time to develop people, they were doing that at the same time as they were building the infrastructure. So I think he 
his learning opportunity there was immense. And then you add that on to his years at Volkswagen prior to Toyota and his years at General Motors after Toyota. And he's just got one very, very unique experience. And he's been able to test this system and implement it over and over, not necessarily in healthcare, but in manufacturing. Uh, so that really the inspiration was how do we implement this system or adapt this system to healthcare? Yeah, and I think it's, it raises an interesting point that being able to do a week-long project is very different than really uh, having a lean philosophy or mindset. You know, the Toyota people today, Jamie Benini from TSSC, who works with uh, suppliers and, and sometimes healthcare, you know, he talks about lean being, uh, you know, they, they, they have this triangle diagram of, of tools and philosophy and management system. You know, why, why do you think it's um, difficult? You know, it seems like all the people in healthcare are really hooked on the week-long rapid improvement events. Why, why do you think that is? And do you have some thoughts on what we can try to do about that? Well, I think in healthcare, especially, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, and the rapid improvement event or the Kaizen event will yield very good results if done properly. Uh, and most of the things that have been published are about all the good things that people have done with Kaizen events. But I don't know. I'm sure that there's been studies, but I don't know any off the top of my head on the failure rate of the Kaizen event. So how many hospitals or organizations just in general tried to do this Kaizen event approach and they didn't have good results? They might have had a good plan, but they didn't have a good check or they didn't have a good you know, uh, ability to integrate it into their daily management, probably because they didn't have a daily management system that was robust enough to do so. Well, I, I know at least one data point that uh, the folks at Virginia Mason uh, shared pretty openly a few years ago is that I think, you know, at least in the early years of doing what they call RPIWs, it was something like a 70 percent uh, rate where they said they sh they didn't s sustain the results. They were backsliding into the old way of doing things. So, you know, the old, going back to the old process, of course, is going to generate the old uh, results. And, and they had to get better at, uh, you know, how they structured and planned the events. And I, you know, what I see, I don't know if this is their situation. I see in healthcare, a lot of people, they get to the end of the event and they say, oh, okay, well, we have our new process now. Like, well, wait a minute, during the event, you maybe had just a, a handful of participants. They may have tried the new, pro the new process, but you haven't really fully engaged or trained uh, the, everyone else in the department who needs to do that work that way. So I, I think at least, and I'm, I'm curious, maybe some of you, you know, if, you, if you've seen a similar thing, what people describe as a lack of sustainment is as much a, a lack of adoption. Yeah, a lack of adoption and a lack of having the, the culture in place to actually sustain the event. So it's easy to get people in a room and you know point out all the problems and point out what we should be doing. But then when we go back to our daily work, it's pretty difficult to convince everybody to get them engaged in improvement because we don't just want to sustain a Kaizen event, we want to improve upon it. Uh, but it's very, very difficult to do that if the, if the culture isn't in place. Yeah. And and in your book, you know, it's focused again a lot on on culture, and the daily management system. What what are some of the things that that you lay out in the book as you know, kind of maybe some of the first steps? Let's say a healthcare system has been doing a lot of projects. Um, they've maybe been doing a lot of training. You know, are, are, is there kind of a, a sequence that you think makes sense about where to start? Do you have to adopt the whole system all at once? I mean, it is a system, or or can you kind of do things in a, a good progression? 
Well, I think you've got to have the leadership team not just on board, but they have to be using the same tools that are used in the pilot hall. Um, some other organizations are calling the pilot hall a model cell. It's mm-hmm. just I, I'm familiar with the language of pilot hall. That's, but Ro- that's what Roger's been calling it for years. But you have to be able to make the system work at the top and at the bottom. And it's not about um, seeing waste and eliminating waste. I think that there's been a lot of books written about that. Not, not that I disagree that we need to see waste and eliminate it. But especially in the beginning, it is very difficult for people to uh, see the positive. And if we can use the tools to help focus on the positive, the good things that everybody's doing, and use the tools to perpetuate the good things, Mm -hmm. uh, that's really what the culture change is about. So how do we sequence the tools? How do we make the tools more manageable so that we just don't have this big Kaizen event or so that we're not asking leaders or asking frontline employees or middle, middle managers to do A3s? Because an A3 is a very... Uh, it's a complex tool with a lot of thinking that goes behind it. And to think that an organization can just start with Kaizen events or A3s, uh, I think just either leads down a path of failure or just takes a long, long time to change the culture and get those tools working. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. There's there's a risk of, um, I think, people getting a little overwhelmed or frustrated by some of these methods. You know, PDSA or A3 or a lot of lean concepts, I think, are deceptively simple at first glance. Um, Then it gets difficult, and and I think sometimes people get a little upset by that. But I think you also raise a a good point, you know, pointing out waste. I mean, what's logically, rationally true, and I I guess I would say as a recovering engineer, it's easy to lose sight of, you know, what, what's rationally true might emotionally really bother somebody. I've seen people in healthcare get really emotional about waste that's either pointed out or even when they identify it, they start feeling bad that the waste is there. They start feeling awful that they haven't been serving their patients well. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that or if you can elaborate a little more on this idea of finding the positive. Yeah, I think, you know, to your point that you just made, a lot of people are either, um, they're very tied to their job and they should be. It's probably the reason why most of us got into healthcare. And for somebody to come in and say, well, that's wasteful, that's wasteful. They don't even, you know, in the beginning, they don't even understand our definition of waste and they right, just right. they just hear the negative. Um, and leaders don't have a lot of time to implement because healthcare is ever changing and there's so many different changes going on right now that if, if they only have time a couple minutes a day or an hour a day, we don't want to send them out to see the waste because, like you said, it just makes everybody feel bad. So how do we send them out to see the positive? So the improvement system or suggestion system, solution system, others call it, uh, if we have a standard process in place to get leaders just to go and see those simple things, to encourage people, to thank them, uh, to give them a reward, some type of recognition, uh, and say, what else are you working on? How, how can I help you make this hospital better, make this organization better? So it's very positive focused. And the leader learns, the frontline employee learns, and the people in the middle also learn as well. Yeah, and I think you know, there's similar challenges at the top. I want to come back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago. You were talking about you know, the management system and, and leadership getting started with those methods. I, I think sometimes you know, senior executives are in a tough spot where for them to admit there's a new system available. There's a new way of doing things. It, it stings just as much. It's an admission of, you know, the way I've been managing for 20 or 30 years uh, is now not good enough. I mean, I think there, there's similar challenges there. Um, how, how do you maybe address some of that from an uh, executive perspective, um, you know, getting past some of that 
you know, the, the emotion of it to, to try to embrace and practice a new way. Yeah, I think it's almost the same for executives, not exactly the same, but in essence, it's it's the same because we also want them to focus on the positive because they're also getting peer pressure from their peers, from the outside, from the board. And what can we do to um, not one necessarily say make them look good, but what are we doing to perpetuate the positive at the executive level as well? Because it's not all about the negative. And a lot of executives have some very, very good behavior that they can be teaching other people. And I think as lean folks around the nation and around the world, it's really our job to help find that positive behavior and help teach our executives to teach each other that positive behavior. So pretty soon it becomes an organizational standard and a norm. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually those negative behaviors will go away because they're just overwritten by the positive behaviors. Yeah, and I mean, do, do you find sometimes that, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, the positive behaviors can become a problem. Someone's greatest strength becomes a weakness. For example, you know, you might praise an executive for, um, you might look at it and say, okay, you, you really, you care about the organization getting good results. You're really energetic, you know, but the negative of that is that they're jumping in, they're, they're being bossy, they're giving people answers. They're, you know, um, there, there may be a flip side to that positive. Um, do you have any thoughts or stories about, you know, striking a balance or maybe making sure what could be a positive doesn't become a negative? Yeah, there's always that uh, possibility. And that's really the role of the sensei or the lean coach. If you don't have a sensei, if, if the lean coach, the internal person is able to do that. And that's why it's so important to have um, go and seize when you're going to the Gemba to make sure somebody's there that's been down the path before that you can PDCA or PDSA after the go and see and say, well, do you know you exhibited this behavior and this is what it portrayed to that person. So what do you think you could do better next time? Uh, like at one organization, for example, this was years and years ago, uh, we had an executive go to the Gemba and look at an improvement and say, oh, well, we're doing this improvement system because of X, Y, and Z. And it, it took the focus off of that employee, off of that idea, and kind of put it back on the leadership team, which I didn't think was a good thing. So we coached that person to say, hey, let's make sure that we're not talking about the improvement system and how good it is. Let's make sure we're talking about this improvement in this person and what can we do to help advance this person and advance their next idea or standardize the improvement across the organization. So I think without that constant coaching and learning, um, it's difficult for the organization to advance. So that's why it's very important to have a good sensei that's been down the road before. Yeah. Now, has has Roger Lewis um, played a role within your health system with, uh, you know, since he had been, I believe he was the general manager at Georgetown. Um, at one point, has he helped mentored or, or become a sensei to um, healthcare leaders that you've been around? Uh, I say that whenever I need to pull the end on, Roger's the one I'm calling. So early on when I started off, uh, I was telling him about all the training we were doing and how we were getting X percent of leaders trained and managers trained. And then he, of course, asked me a question. So how many people in the pilot hall have you trained so far? <laughs> have you have you done a little study to make sure that the training is getting the results that you want it to get? Uh, so he's always there to pull the end on, uh, and I think he's a very good resource for that. Yeah. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask about, um, you know, we talk about management systems and, and executives. I think it's easy for for even you know people here in the lean world to start 
um, sort of you know pushing a solution. You know, we've seen something that we know is powerful: uh, a lean management system, a lean culture, uh, daily improvement, and 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 you know, kind of uh, you know we're, we gotta be careful. We practice what we we preach in terms of defining a problem um, and, and letting that approach be a countermeasure. How 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 would you describe you know if if the executives uh, can and should embrace a new approach. I mean, have you given thought to how, how do we define, and I don't know the answer here necessarily, how do we define the problem statement with executives in a way that is engaging instead of, uh, instead of threatening in some way? I don't know. That's a tough, tough question. Uh, I'm not really sure how to, how to answer that because it really depends on where the executive team is and what their problem at hand is. Um, sometimes you may need to start with a different tool that you might not want to start with or that you might not know is the best thing for the organization to to capture the hearts and minds of the executives. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just depends on, on where they're at. If they're focused on culture, focused on finance, or if they need help with one of those, I think it, I think it depends. I guess I really didn't answer your question there. Well, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a fair, reasonable answer uh, to say it depends. I mean, it, it's... It was a question that was maybe asking for, uh, you know, inappropriate generalization. <laughs> um, but I think you know you bring you raise an interesting issue though, talking about the idea of capturing hearts and minds. That lean is never just a, a purely logical, rational approach. Um, you know, I, I was at a patient safety conference last weekend, and a number of people were kind of talking about the theme. Um, they're saying in healthcare, you need not just data, but you need stories. And, you know, I think stories can really help engage um, the, the, the hearts as well as the minds. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts or experiences, or maybe you've touched on this uh, in, in the book? You know, how, how do we get people to care about lean instead of just, uh, you know, I think there's cases where people you know, have had lean forced on them where, where, where they didn't have their hearts and minds engaged. What, what are your thoughts there? I think when it comes to stories, almost everybody can, can tell you a horror story from their experience at a certain hospital or a loved one's experience at a hospital. But I think when we go to really try to um, show everybody what lean is about, show everybody what culture change is about, it's much more than just telling those horror stories, but it's telling you know a patient safety story and then what the cause was and what we did to make sure that it would never happen again. And that's really where the positive comes out, so that people can start to learn. Oh, they applied this tool there, or they you know thought of this countermeasure here. I think I can tweak that a little bit for my area, and it just perpetu- perpetuates the positive. But if we tell horror stories without telling what we did about it and what, what we're going to do to make sure it never happens again. It's very difficult to perpetuate lean and perpetuate the culture. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where, where I was reading it the other day. Somebody was talking about, um, you know, you can't just, um, you know, uh, point out the problem or the challenge, you know, that, that'll get people stirred up without some idea of what we're going to do about it. Um, you know, people are going to get uh, wound up and it can be, I think, counterproductive. I wonder how much this happens in healthcare. You know, the, there have been the studies going back to 1999 of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands um, of Americans. You know, it's estimated and that's the best they can do is, is estimate this who, who die as the result of 
uh, preventable medical errors. You know, that, that's really hard for people in healthcare to stomach and, uh, and even think about. Um, I, I think sometimes because I think maybe people are afraid that they don't know how to solve it. So let's just let's not get wound up about it. But it's such a serious issue. Yeah, there's a burning platform on so many different levels in healthcare, and I think, um, well, I hope every executive across the nation realizes that, and I think they do. Um, but you know, executives need to be that buffer between what's happening externally and what's happening internally, and make sure that again, it comes back to focusing on the positive. Um, you know, sharing the positive statistics within the hospital, sharing the good things that the organization is doing to, to move the needle on those negative national numbers really helps get people engaged uh, towards a common goal and see that it's working. If they don't see it's working, see that the tools or the the efforts, whatever it might be, is working, it's it's hard to continue to perpetuate that. One other thing you, you talked about in the book, and I think this maybe also ties into the idea of capturing hearts and minds, you, you really highlighted this idea of of mutual trust, and and I think, you know, my reaction to reading that is to say, well, I think I think that's that's insightful, and and that I think it often goes unsaid uh, in in lean that in a really lean environment that that mutual trust is there, and it's sort of like a fish being in water doesn't describe the water around it; it just is. Um, can can you kind of elaborate on on this idea of mutual trust? What it means? How can we try to build that? Maybe as a starting point, even. Well, I think initially from a high level, uh, you know, mutual trust, a lot of folks look at that as we're not going to lay anybody off from improvement, but really you want to take it to the next level and say, we're not going to lay anybody off, period. We're going to uh, hold these jobs. It's about not only patient safety, employee safety, but it's about having an organization that's going to sustain over the years so that that kind of gets that out of the way so that people can be engaged in improvement and not worried about their jobs. They're worried about the things that you know, really matter to the organization, uh, the patient safety, employee safety, et cetera. But mutual, mutual trust and respect on a daily basis gets down to, that's why we go to see improvements instead of go to see the waste. We'll eliminate the waste by going to see improvements, but it's, it's such a subtle difference, but it, the, the connotation and the perception from the mass of the organization is very, very different if a leader goes and sees waste versus goes and sees improvements. Well, and I, I mean, I think without that that mutual trust, it gets difficult because people, again, I think even if it's not intended, they take things very personally. I'm sure you know we've both been through situations where you're you're looking at a process, or you're doing value stream mapping, and you know you're kind of identifying, you know, is that step value or is that step non-value added? And people's bias and tendency is always to describe, well, that step's value. Well, that step's value. They're like, well. If you step back and ask, well, why, why is that stuff value? And they say, well, it's because, well, we we have to do it. I mean, I'll bet you know we, we know it's. I mean, maybe it's you know it's partly an academic discussion. Say, well, it's just because you have to do it doesn't make it value. Is it something that's helping the patient? Uh, is it restoring their health or, or taking them along that path? And you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I have an example where it really stings when you say, okay, well, rationally, logically, that's that's waste. Um, but I think you're, uh, what I hear you really emphasizing that point is to, to be careful that pointing out that fact doesn't disengage people or turn them off and then they won't participate in improvement if they're disengaged, right? 
Right, right. And in terms of value versus non-value, I think it comes back to sequencing. Again, our earlier conversation, uh, you want to make sure that people's hearts and minds are engaged, that they they understand the improvement portion, they're hearing the improvement portion, uh, so that when they see what needs to be improved, it's not a matter of um, people throwing up fences to say, oh, no, that's value-added. It's not non-value-added because they already get it. They already see what improvement is. But if their hearts and minds aren't captured, it's very difficult to, to see past that and see the improvement portion necessary. Like in, I can't remember what chapter it is, the, the balance scorecard chapter, mm-hmm. chapter four. Um, I, I, I mean, the balance scorecard is a tool that's been out there and how to visualize metrics and visualize leading indicators and top problems. Uh, but when you look at an executive, just using them again, for example, anybody can make this mistake, go up to a balanced scorecard and there's red and there's green. What do most people point out first? Well, I mean, they, they focus on the red. Why is that red? What do we need to improve? Right. 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 So it's so it's trying to flip that conversation so that learning to see is learning to see the green wow, what did we do to get from here to here? So that the, so the executive or the leader or the manager can see the improvement portion and go back and thank the team, reward, recognize, so that they can eliminate more and more red. But if we don't learn how to see the positive, it's very difficult to eliminate the negative. Anybody can see the negative. Anybody can walk into an organization and say, well, that's red. You should be doing something differently. But it's very difficult to engage people in um, improvement activity. Well, and I think, uh, you know, the, you bring up, uh, you know, I think a different topic about the red and, and the green. Um, you know, a lot of times the, the, those red and green boundaries are, are just, uh, you know, completely arbitrary. You know, see so somebody will have a goal for for some metric. The goal is point three, four, seven. You're like, well, how, how in the heck does someone pick a goal of you know something to that many decimal points? Why is the goal point three, four, seven? And they'll say something like. Well, last year the goal was was 0.35, and we want it to be a little bit better than it was last year. Um, you know, so that that green and red is really dependent upon you know if we if we didn't pick challenging goals, everything would be green. Um, but uh, you know, I'm curious, kind of your thoughts around setting those goals, and and maybe in the context of strategy deployment, which is a, a topic that you also address in the book, just kind of going beyond the the balanced scorecard approach into um, in a strategy deployment. What, what are some of your thoughts on on that? Well, you definitely want to get all the numbers linked so that they all link back to the corporate goals and the annual strategy. Um, and it's important to have things to the right decimal point. But more importantly is to have the right behaviors in place. So if we're going to have a goal that's that tight, we better have a master plan in place for how we're going to get there. And if that behavior of having a master plan and driving the annual plans, the monthly activities, the daily activities, if those aren't in place, uh, what's the point in having a goal that's so stringent when you don't have a plan that's going to help you achieve the goal? And I think, you know, what one of those goals that you could describe as stringent, um, you know, you're, you're in Pennsylvania, Paul O'Neill, who's done a lot of work in the, in the Pittsburgh area really talks a lot about setting a goal of, uh, of zero patient harm. And I think that's a goal that, that people might get upset about. They don't want to think about the harm. They might think that zero harm is, uh, isn't possible. But I think, you know, I think O'Neill raises really good points. And I think it comes back to this idea of mutual trust. You know, if we're going to set a goal of zero harm as you know, I think, you know, staff over time, 
can learn to, to trust their leaders because the leaders are helping them with what they need to do the do the work that leaders uh, make sure that they've got the right staffing levels the right process the right environment the right technology and i think that builds trust and then i think there's also trust in the other direction that okay when we we're likely not going to achieve that goal this year of zero harm and when we don't hit that goal we're not going to blame the workers we're not going to uh you know punish people or uh, make them feel bad uh, you know i guess I guess you know it's possible to accentuate the positive. We reduced harm by fifty percent this year. Now, next year, how do we reduce it another fifty percent? Um, is that? You know, my question for you would be: Is is that positive? Is that is that positive enough? Is that <laughs> is that too negative? Um, what what are your thoughts there? You know, I think it's it's kind of a catch twenty two. Um, in the balanced scorecard chapter, I talk about the, the six-year scorecard and setting world-class targets, which is Roger's adaptation of the true north. Um, and, you know, the reason behind that is if you go to an executive team and say, okay, next year our goal is zero patient injuries or zero employee injuries or 100% satisfaction, no matter what it, what it might be, and I understand the difference between safety and satisfaction, but... Um, at the end of the year, when we don't achieve that goal, people are, they may say, well, the system didn't work. This lean thing doesn't work. We didn't achieve our goal. So it's very important to have interim steps. Again, that's why, you know, we use the six-year scorecard so that we can say at the end of the year, oh, this is working. We are moving towards world-class. We are making a difference. And we're going to improve because the target's already already set. We're going to achieve this goal next year, and we know we can do it. But I think it's a like I said at the beginning, I think it's a catch-22 because nobody wants to say, well, our goal this year is 20 serious events, serious patient safety events, and last year it was 30, and we're improving by X percent. Um, but I think in terms of culture and focusing on the positive, you've got to have an interim goal so that people can see that the system's working so that it, you know all that energy can be put back into the system and we can achieve more and more. Because the reality is I think there's probably – organizations out there that are saying uh, zero safety events, but they're not backing it up with a system. They're not backing it up with the culture and they don't mm -hmm. have a place to get there. Yeah, I think you know, there is a lot of that happening. It becomes a slogan instead of something that everyone's really, truly working together on. And again, I think that that gets demoralizing. That diminishes the sense of trust. If, if people get excited and say, OK, our leaders are talking about patient safety, we all care about patient safety. We, we all come to work to go, do a good job and not harm anybody. This is exciting. And then to not get support, um, you know, I think some, sometimes it seems like, you know, executives making some sort of promise. There might be a promise around, hey, we're going to go, we're going to listen to you. We're going to help you implement your ideas in a daily continuous improvement approach. If leaders say that and then don't follow through, that ends up, you know, I think, you know, morale ends up worse than it would have been if you had just never promised anything. And, and maybe I think that that comes down to that question of trust. I think, sadly, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, healthcare professionals haven't been given a lot of good reasons to trust their leaders. And, and I think that's a really difficult starting point for Lane. Yeah, it is. And that's why, you know, it's why it's all about the culture and it's all about mutual trust and respect. And how do we focus on the positive to get more positive, which will eliminate waste? versus focusing on the waste to eliminate waste, which it's hard to rally people behind until their hearts and minds are captured. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, maybe one other thing we talk about here, um, I, I posted on the blog for anyone who didn't see it back on the 20, uh, January 27th, um, a guest post attributed to Steve. It's an excerpt from uh, the book, a chapter, a section on daily huddles. Um, Steve, maybe, you know, kind of summarize for the listeners, you know, how would you explain a daily huddle to those who aren't doing them? And, you know, there's a lot of people in healthcare who don't have a daily huddle. How would you describe a huddle or, you know, do you see kind of second part of the question? Sometimes people are doing huddles, but it's different than what we might do in a lean culture. How, how would you um, sort of give someone an introduction to lean daily huddles? Well, uh, I guess I'll start with what a lean daily huddle is not because I've seen organizations that have taken uh, different approaches and it's been a top-down approach mm -hmm. and they're just saying, I want you to talk about this and this and this and this and it just becomes another way for corporate communication and that's that's not a huddle. Mm -hmm. And there's other places that think that lean is all about the huddle because you can go to the huddle and you can see things happening, you can see things working, um, but if the things aren't working in between the huddles, then the huddle isn't really going to be that good. But it's a pretty good starting point. Um, so in the book, I outline, you know, you want to create the huddle prompts. What are the standing agenda items that you're going to add to each and every day or that you're going to talk about each and every day? And it's not about the leader saying things. It's about the leader asking questions to mm. try to really engage people. What are the positive things that are happening? What are some of the problems that we need to solve? Um, at first, it's very transactional. It may be transactional until we get the right data in place to help support uh, what we're trying to do. But as you add the other tools like a problem-solving sheet or an improvement sheet, then the huddles become much more transformational. Um, selecting a time and place for the huddle, that's honestly probably one of the most difficult things to do, it seems. And I've seen you know executive teams and I've seen frontline teams go back and forth. Oh, we're going to do this at noon. We're going to do it at 4.30. We're going to do it at 7 a.m. And what I found is you pretty much just have to pick a time and stick to it. And after a couple of weeks, if it's not the best time, you can change that time. But just picking a time and sticking to it is important. And in the beginning, um, you know, people are going to be reluctant to show up because they want to take care of patients. They want to make a difference, and they feel like a huddle is getting in the way of doing that. And until that culture really starts to shift, um, it takes a little bit for those behaviors to change. You want to introduce the standards. Why are we having a huddle? Why do we need to meet? What are the other tools that are going to be integrated to the, into the huddle? What's this thing called a balanced scorecard, and how are we going to use it to visualize employee safety and patient safety? Uh, you want to share responsibilities for facilitating. So it's not just about the leader asking these questions every day and leading the huddle. You want others to lead it so that they know what it's like to walk in the leader's shoes. Even if it's only for five minutes, it's a different perspective. So people tend to talk about things differently and bring different things up at the huddle that they feel are important because they're in somebody else's shoes. Um, you want to encourage and lead problem solving. So the, you don't want this to turn into a complaint session if you're asking about problems. So that's why you use the problem mm -hmm. sheet to, to document what's happening. On the same token, you know, as leaders are doing their rounds or as you're seeing improvements happen or as if people are learning about the improvement system, you want them to document their improvements so that they can share them at the huddle to get more improvements and so that they can be shared around the rest of the organization. Um, and daily reports are very, very necessary. We've got to get the right reports to help us with the right information. And in healthcare, I know there's a lot of uh, um, older systems, older IT systems that that hinder doing that. So sometimes it takes some time to do that. Um, so, But it's very important to have 
facts so that we know what problems we're trying to solve and what improvements we're trying to make. And then we want to incorporate it in the leader standard work. Uh, so some organizations, especially the ones using the transformation curve, will have tiered huddles so that if there's a couple frontline teams meeting, that may filter up to an executive style huddle so that they know, you know, at the end of the executive huddle, they know where to go and see, they know who to ask um, for different problems, who to follow up with and say, and say thank you based on the improvement system. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's 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 a lot of good tips there, and I you know I think for the listeners, you know I think that is kind of an example of the detail that's there in the book, and I'll, I'll give you credit for um, you know taking on the challenge of writing something that is uh, you know sort of a roadmap and a structure. You know, for for my book for Lean Hospitals, that I I you know that that that's a big challenge. I, I didn't take on that challenge. My book is more of a primer about learning terms and. Uh, you know uh, some of the techniques and the mindset and the philosophy. Um, I, I think that that does need to be followed up by a book that um, you know kind of gives you some pointers about uh, you know more of a roadmap. So thank you for uh, for for doing that. And maybe as we wrap up here, if you can just sort of briefly kind of explain, you know, you, you chose to self-publish or kind of go through your own publishing imprint. Can you, can you just share a little bit about that and then let the listeners know, you know, how and where they can find and, and buy the book? Well, it wasn't my intent to self-publish. I had a, um, a contract with a publishing house, but as I went through this, you know, we were using it for as a training manual and I was sending it to others to use as a training manual. So all these graphics that I did throughout the book, they were all embedded. They were, I was using pages on my uh, Mac computer and you know the publisher wanted everything separated they had a certain process and for me to go back and backtrack and redo everything would have been just way too much work and i wanted to put the focus on you know making sure the book is laid out correctly like you said it's very very nuts and bolts um on how to implement a daily management system or at least phase one of this transformation curve uh, so making sure that the right text is there with the right pictures i didn't want anything to bump to another page so i was very meticulous with this and I just found that uh, self-publishing was the easier way for me and you know like you and I had a discussion a couple days ago and you said oh well what if you change this word or did that a little bit differently well now I can do that I can go back and change it because it's print on demand <laughs> uh, which yeah. I, I think is great I'm not going to make any significant improvements in the next um, you know couple months or probably a year or two I'll wait till the second release but if there's minor things that, that I can change them uh, the best thing to do is just go on Amazon. It's available on Prime. Uh, it's also available Barnes and Noble, uh, and you can get it there. Uh, I chose not to do an ebook just because it, the purpose of this is a training book. It's for a manual. It's to be taught in the Gemba or in a classroom, and it really wasn't meant to be taught behind a computer screen. So that's why I just chose to keep it keep it as the print version. But self-publishing was very, very difficult. I wasn't expecting that. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> took, yeah, a lot, there, there, took a lot longer to get out than I thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's, there are, there are many, many pros and cons to it. I mean, like I said, you, you were able to maintain sort of, you know, complete creative control over uh, the output, and like you said, pr printing in small batches. That's, that's, uh, and being able to do continuous improvement. That seems like the, the lean way to publish a lean book. So, yep. it's good. Good, good for you. But yeah, it is it is a lot of work. Um, I have an appreciation for anyone who has ever uh, taken a book to completion. So uh, congratulations and 
yeah, I hope uh, I hope the book does well. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, well, thank our listeners for joining us today. Our guest has been uh, Steve Leischel, uh talking about uh, his new book, Lean Culture Change: Using a Daily Management System. And if you go to the blog post for this episode, there will be links. Uh, to the book and all sorts of other resources related to um, Steve's work. So, Steve, thanks again for uh, joining us and uh, telling us about your book today. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.